0: Good morning, everyone. Martin, I think we need to work this out next week because I'm a mean and nasty man. May I have you stand for the reading of Holy Scripture? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, our two, we have two scripture readings for today, and our first one is out of Romans 4 7 through, through 12. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then one for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all those who would believe without circumc- without being circumcised, so the righteous would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham be had before he was circumcised. Our second scripture reading is a Ruth 115 through 17. And she said, Ruth or Naomi, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if, if anything but death parts me from you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, Lord, thank you for bringing us together to this day. And Lord, thank you for your unceasing kindness toward us. Lord, even when we don't think, that you are doing anything in our lives when we don't think that you are moving. You are always working, working for our good, working all things together that we may know you and your goodness, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that um, for those who this morning are struggling with pain or doubt or conflict, Lord, that you may give them peace. You may settle them that you are the God of Israel, the God of the nations, Lord, and that you offer us peace and you offer us promises for not only our earthly good, but our heavenly good. And Lord, we pray this morning that if we are encouraged in faith, if we are um, exalted in you, Lord, that we would be lifted even higher and come to new depths and understanding. And so, Lord, we ask you today to turn us back again, turn our faces back to you, that we may walk in your ways in the steps of Abraham. And may you forgive us of our sins. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I'm also going to do something rather strange, but I will give a brief explanation. About this. So, I don't know when the last time many of you have read Ruth. And um, being that there is actually no word in at least the Hebrew scriptures for reading silently to ourselves, I'm going to read the first two chapters this week and the second uh, half of it next week out loud. And the reason why is because I want to, number one, come back into the ancient practice of actually reading our scriptures out loud in good portions to one another because I believe they're to be received by hearing them. And secondly, that we may reorient ourselves to the story of Ruth and what happens in the book because um, it's a very deep book in many ways and there's a lot of depth to be gained um, it so I'm going to read the first two chapters and then we'll go into the sermon. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, these took Moabite wives, and the names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her son, two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from a place where she was with her two daughters, daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in your house of your of her husband then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her no we will return with you to your people but naomi said turn back my daughters why will you go with me have you have I yet two sons in my womb that you may become your, your that they may become your husbands turn back my daughters go your way For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were growing? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her and said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me. So Naomi returned to Ruth the Moabite and the daughter her daughter in law, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go down to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And she set out and went to glean in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, She was of the clan, uh, the, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, "'Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers.' So she came, and she continued from the early morning until now, except after for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "'Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them.' have not i charged the young men not to touch you and when you are thirsty go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn then she said and fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him why have i found favor in your eyes that i should take notice that you should take notice of me since i am a foreigner but boaz answered her All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said, Come here and eat uh, eat bread and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat down beside the reapers, and he passed And he passed roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, "Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, that and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her." So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about a ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food that was left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name is with the man's name of whom I work today was, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest another field be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. So we, as, as we approach Ruth today, as we approach Ruth this morning, I think one of the most helpful questions we can ask about the book, and indeed, actually, a, a good question to ask of any piece of literature, is what type of literature is this? Um, because in doing that, and in answering that question instructs you how you should be reading it, um, I doubt you read your car manual the same way that you read uh, The Hobbit or um, the same way that you read your Bibles and so, or the same way that you read a history book. Indeed, this is kind of one of the fundamental things of reading. Um, I read a great book when I was in university called How to Read a Book. And um, if you ever want to... Uh, Read that book, it would be very instructive, not only for reading your Bibles, but for reading any type of literature. But as we approach Ruth, the first question we must ask is what sort of literature is this? And then this leads into actually the second question we should ask this morning what sorts of questions does the author, both the human author and the divine author, seek? to answer for us. What questions should we be asking of the book? Is it a book that's primarily about romantic relationships and how to pick a spouse? Or as the Babylon Bee writers, or the satirical writers say, the Bachelorette Jewish edition? Um, or is this a book about friendship in the line of Proverbs 18 that says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother? Is it a book about friendship? Is it a book that's answering, it's a, a, a polemical story against Ezra's command of Jewish men to divorce their foreign wives? Since Ruth is a Moabitess and Boaz is a Jew, is there some kind of hidden meaning in this book? And, or is it a book about God's sovereignty and about his provision and his kindness most ultimately, not only to the people of Israel, but in his Messiah, Jesus. These are all questions that we could ask of the book. And if you ask me, are they about? Which one of these things are they about? I would say, yes, they're about all these things. To varying degrees, they're, they are about all these things. So... Let's now turn to the first question. What type of literature is Ruth? Now, scholars, as scholars do, they like to debate about the genre, and there's been various proposals throughout history about what Ruth is. Is it wisdom literature? Is it history? Is it... Uh, and they make up all sorts of genres and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, one of the most obvious um, literary structures or the way that it presents to us is as historical narrative. Now for us, many of us went to you know, high school and learned very boring history and so we have almost a completely wrong idea of what historical narrative and history is supposed to do as literature. We think about oh, the United States was founded on 1776 the Battle of Waterloo happened in 1815. The Six-Day War in Israel happened in 1967. And that's how we fundamentally learn history in our primary school and high school education, unfortunately. Maybe Brigetta has a better handle on this, since she's German. But for most of us in the room, um, we we got a, a U.S. high school education, and this is how we learn history. And this is not History, by the way, this is chronicles. This is giving facts and events and timelines. That's not history. That's called chronicling. And so when we're coming to Ruth and we categorize it and we say, what type of literature is this? And we say it's historical narrative, then it's helpful to reflect, what is historical narrative? What is it supposed to teach us? And so whether the historian is ancient or modern, the historian always seeks. To tell accurately about the events that transpired, but in such a way of pulling out the details and pulling out the things that mattered from those events to teach us certain lessons about what the historian wants us to learn. And so we can think about the ancient historian Thucydides and his great work, The Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War's questions that it seeks to answer, what Thucydides tries to put forth is what is human nature? What is the relationship between intelligence and good judgment? And so Thucydides has very specific goals in reaccounting what happened in the Peloponnesian War. He's highlighting certain aspects of the war and the attitudes during the war to specifically bring out something about who humans are. And this is not, like I said An aspect of ancient history This is indeed An aspect of modern history Right now uh, I'm reading a book on Nixon and it's trying to talk About, it's discussing well What led to Nixon's downfall And There's a book I just read Just about a year ago called The Second World Wars How the first global conflict was won and fought by Victor Davis Hanson. What Hansen seeks to show us, even in the very subtitle, is how was the Second World War fought? What did the Allies do to be triumphant? And what did the Axis do that led to their blunders and ultimate collapse under their goal of winning the war? And so what Hansen very explicitly does is to try to show what led to success. In battle, and what led to failure, and what was the root of that success? How was that embedded into the Axis culture? And how did the mistrust between, or sorry, the Allied culture, and how did the mistrust between the Axis powers lead to their downfall? And so, both modern and ancient historians sought to teach us a lesson through history. And so, as we approach Ruth, it is actually very appropriate for, to ask us, to ask ourselves, what does Ruth teach us? What does the historian want us to take away from Ruth? Indeed, it could be all the things I mentioned before, but I think that there's much more for us to contemplate about Ruth. And so what I'll propose to you today is that what Ruth seeks to answer? One of the things to answers, with the historian answers for us in Ruth, is the ancient classical, phlo- uh, ancient question of classical philosophy of what is the good life, what constitutes the good life. This question goes back to Aristotle, Aristotle and Plato, and it has had abiding. Uh, has been a abiding question in our culture since then and no doubt before then as well i think this is actually this question actually drives a lot of us it drives a lot of our contemporaries it drives a lot of us in this room what makes a good life and this is behind a lot of the life hack literature which is just, by the way, FYI, life hack literature is just millennials rebranding self-help because they're too embarrassed to call it self-help. And there is, this is behind the contemporary um, interest or the revitalized interest in the Stoic philosophers of Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. And this is also behind the popularity of someone like Jordan Peterson. People are trying to understand what is the good life. And so over the next two sermons, we will analyze this question through the lens of Ruth, and I'll seek to show how the historian, the writer of Ruth, both the divine and human writer, seek to answer this question for us. But what I want to focus on today is what the question actually assumes, the hidden assumptions in the questions. The philosophers talk about hidden assumptions, and, and what the question actually has is two hidden assumptions at least two hidden assumptions one the very fact that the question is even asked presumes that the good life is not obvious to us and the longer we live the longer we know this because of the hurt that we've caused people the hurt that we've received the things that we thought would be good and end up being bad It's not obvious to us. But that is an assumption behind the question, so we will look at that assumption. The second assumption is it assumes that we have life to begin with. If you're asking what is the good life, you're asking about a quality of life, not that you have life to begin with. And what Ruth shows us, the book of Ruth shows us, is you probably should not start there. That's not a good place to start. You have to ask, do I have life to begin with? And so, now with that in mind, let us actually turn to that first question, that first hidden assumption. Is the good life obvious? And we will take a look at Naomi, Ali Malik, the, the sons, to help us explore this aspect of the question. So, if we recall, and part of the reason why I read the first two chapters is to help give us context to this and, um, and to help think about the book of Ruth together better. So the book of Ruth opens in the time of Judges. Now, if we're taking our kind of like high school understanding, we're saying, oh, it's during the time of Judges, it's approximately this time. Good. That's a good place to start. We need to go further. Because the book of Judges is characterizing a time when everybody did what was right in their own sight. That's actually how the book ends. And talk about a stunning, provocative ending to a book and everybody did what was right in their own sight. Does that not sound like our own time today? (laughs) And so what the book is inviting us to is it's saying, think about the time of the judges. And that's how you should, in part, be understanding the book of Ruth. And so it opens in saying, these people, Elimelech, Naomi, Miquelon, and Kilion, are characterized by doing what is right in their own sight. They are people of the time of the judges. Just as we would say that there are people of the time of the 1960s and you know, we associate all sorts of cultural aspects about people who grew up in the sixties or people who grew up in the Depression era. When it says this is the time of the judges, it's saying these are people of that time. They're a people of that generation. And so the book doesn't do much at the beginning to contradict our our view of Ellie Mellick and his family. It, doesn't, uh, it does not uh, show us that, um, that they were much different than their contemporaries. Because instead of staying in Israel, because there was a great famine in the land, so it says that's why they left, instead of staying in Israel and trusting and praying for God's provision, they leave. And in, in the ancient Near East, to leave your country was actually to leave your God that was their kind of fundamental understanding so they went to Moab to go to Chemosh but not only did they stay at Chemosh is the chief deity of the Moabites so not only did they uh, leave but they kind of hung out 10 years? I, I, I don't know I haven't heard of a famine that lasts 10 years and, and so the author's telling you these details saying well they laughed and you're saying oh that's not good and oh and they stayed there 10 years and then it Caps with the two sons taking Moabite wives And and So for ev- any Israelite reader of this They would have been almost shocked Like dumbstruck That they were Explicitly going against The commands of God And, and not trusting in God's provision But one of the things That we see And one of the key themes in Ruth is that it actually is calling back to some earlier epochs in Israel's history. And so in those earlier epochs, it calls back to the Genesis account to us. And we can see that what Elimelech and his family did was not substantially different than what Lot did. Lot, who was the founder of Moab, did. So in Genesis, Lot... gets in a conflict with Abram, before Abram was Abraham, and because their herdsmen were fighting. And Abraham says, hey, Lot, if you go choose what way you want to go, you can choose any way you want to go, and I'll go the opposite one so our herdsmen don't fight. And this is what Lot did. It says this, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot looked and saw and made a reasonable decision to go in a well watered area. But Lot leaned on his own understanding, Lot lived by sight, Lot did what was right in his own eyes. And Eli Melech and his family, like Eli Melek and his family, he only found death and destruction. And so very forcefully, very intentionally, the Bible is trying to teach something in the Genesis account and this account in Ruth. That when you do, you live by sight, you find death. This is what the history is Supposed, supposed to teach us and now I think that there's a part of us that says yeah well you know Jordan you know this is a patriarchal society you know and did Naomi really have a choice I mean she's just obeying her husband you know these are primitive people they don't they, they're not as lightened in us and so we shouldn't hold Naomi accountable for this attitude of living by sight and I would push back on you and say no I think Naomi actually carries this forward even more this kind of characterizes Naomi's arguments and Naomi's a wonderful character I don't want to shortline, uh, you know give her the short end of the deal but Naomi reflects us to a great deal and so if you have any problem with me characterizing Naomi with this then you probably have I believe this actually reflects us all and, and a great deal. But if we look at this, what Naomi does is she urges her daughter-in-laws to return to their mother's house, to return to their people, to return to their gods. And we think of the Ten Commandments there, return to your gods, there should be another god before, before me. Okay. And so basically Naomi's telling them, go back. Just go back to your country, go back. And her urging gives these reasonable and very persuasive arguments. It reminds me of Paul when he says, don't be uh, deceived by persuasive-sounding arguments. And I always joke that, what does persuasive mean in the Greek? Persuasive. They sound good. And I think that we get very um, caught up in this, and we think, wow, they actually make some good points. And, And often people do. And so, Naomi's points are spot on. Hey, I'm too old to have kids. And even if I had kids, would you wait around for them? What advantage would it have for you? And by the way, if you come with me, you have to come to some weird land, leave your culture, leave your gods, leave your customs. So you would be better off just finding husbands here and not taking the hardship. It will be a hard road following me. Go. I don't want that for you. This sounds... Caring in a certain degree it it is. From one view it is. But however, it betrays a deep, deep lack of faith on Naomi's behalf. In that God is actually good. And I would actually I would actually kind of point out did did Naomi forget that God visited her family or her, her people with food? Did Naomi forget the redemption that someone like Boaz could offer her daughter-in-laws? Did Naomi forget that her people were taken out by the hand of God from Egypt? Did she forget the patriarchs? She forgot a lot of things. If If she reflected on these things, she would actually see that God provides, and that God, that these two women want to be with her and want their to be a part of the people of Israel To come under the protection of their God And she says, nah, he's not that good I think we do that a lot You know, to be quite frank And so I'm going to turn to us I'm going to turn this back on us Because, I, well, I, I wanted to point this out Is that, Naomi forgets what C.S. Lewis said Not that she would remember C.S. Lewis But uh, I think it's a very apt summary is that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And how often have I found that true in my own life? And so when we... So let's turn to ourselves. Do we live by sight? Are we ever tempted to cheat on our taxes because we don't think that we have the money to pay them? So we understate our income? Or maybe we overstate our deductions? Do we lie to our friends or to our spouses because we're embarrassed for them to know the truth? We want to preserve our image of being a good person. Do we treat our enemies with harshness? Do we badmouth them? Do we defame them? Because we think that there would be no vengeance or protection otherwise? Do we take a non believing spouse because we fear being alone? Do we take on the values of our culture in the realm of sexuality, for example, because we're afraid of not getting promotion or being ostracized? or losing friends or do we self-medicate with pot prescription drugs alcohol pornography or even just binge watching Netflix to escape our life I think do any of these ring true to you for yourself they do to me I mean, I'm coming up here telling you all these ring true to me. All these are temptations. Because why do I think this? And why do we think this? Because we think that the good life is found in these things. That we can make our lives better. That we can be, we can leave our, ourselves intact and have everything that we want and an easy life. But I'm reminded at this point of what the Proverbs teach us, that there's a way that seems right to us, but its end is, is the way of death. And so this morning, think back on your life. And how many things have you said, I'm going to do this. I, I know what God's word says but I'm going to do this anyway. And and it has led us and where that's actually led you to. But Ruth comes in. And Ruth comes in as someone that we should follow. A woman of virtue. And I think she is just one of the most profound people in scripture. And Ruth is definitely one of my favorite books because her and Boaz are just wonderful wonderful people and she's one of those people that push back on you she breaks your expectations I was actually chatting with one of my rabbi friends and we were sitting after synagogue one day and I said isn't it amazing how these people kind of show up they just pop into scripture and kind of push back on you and make you think, did I, did I read God right? Have I been bearing false witness on God? Because we often ask, act like he's a mean taskmaster. And they come back and push on you because the very people, and I, I pointed this out to Levi, I said, the very people that should know about God, that should know about his kindness, that should know about his provision, don't. They seem to forget and then you have rahab the prostitute show up and actually reflect the 10 commandments in a very weird way and then she becomes part of israel and part of the line of messiah then you have jonah's sailors who apparently called out to the lord when jonah the prophet wouldn't then you have the ninevites who are just these wicked people, and the scripture says so, but suddenly they realize, oh, God's a compassionate God, and says, who knows, even though he has pronounced judgment, maybe he'll be gracious, and God was gracious to them. They fundamentally understood God more than Jonah in that case. But I would also add to this list, for our context, we see the woman at the well, who had all those marriages. We see Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was not an IRS agent? He is more like a, you know, horrible collaborator, and um, the thief on the cross, who obviously, you know, spent enough of his life doing crime to end up on a cross, and at that moment he says, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He knew the goodness of God and God's forgiveness of sins, and we can think of Apostle Paul and a handful of many people in our scriptures that God uses to push back on us because we think, oh, we got to be good. And yes, we do have to be good. We do have to walk in the way that Jesus walked. But that's not the fundamental message. The fundamental message is that we come to God empty. And what we have in Ruth is a shocker because Ruth comes from a people who was founded on an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters that is what, how Moab was founded and you think about this and you're just stunned but she, Ruth also comes from a people who sought to curse the Israelites as they entered the land and Ruth comes from a people who practiced temple prostitution and Ruth comes from a land who sacrificed babies to their chief deity, Kamash. In our politically correct and euphemistic way, we'd say, oh, she grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, or she had the deck stacked against her. But we encounter these people, and we say, well, we don't want anything to do with them. And so this makes Bruce's story her declaration to Naomi even more shocking, and so let's let's pick up on the the main passage that I want to focus on. So, what Naomi says is, "Hey, go after your sister-in-law. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people and your gods." And this is actually where Ruth comes in, and Ruth says, um, "Do not urge me to leave you." or return from following you. Naomi, the, the word choice of urge is actually very interesting, both in English and Hebrew. English is just reflecting the Hebrew. But it's this intense, forceful argument that Naomi is giving Ruth. This is not just a mere recommendation saying, hey, you know, the road's going to be hard, but you can come if you want, but you should maybe stay. You know, No, it's saying... Don't come. Don't And Ruth is saying, no, 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 don't urge me to go. You're not going to put this pressure on me to go. And it shows her unwavering commitment to Naomi. And when we get to the second part of that verse, she says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, if this is the only thing Ruth said, this would be stunning in itself, because in this world you know the the one where you depended upon a husband to be able to take care of you to to provide for you, this is a very dangerous world to live in. I, I think that um, we we think that it was because they're unenlightened that they had these kind of customs and but when you look at it, it's actually no. They, they faced very real dangers um, as people. Uh, we we live in a life of comfort and peace, and um, women and men at that time faced great danger. There's also legal restrictions, and we could go into the whole bit. But the point is, is that the that where the protection, the income, the security came for women in the ancient Near East was. Men. And this was very common um, in the ancient world. We could see why the scriptures have these kind of these commands to take care of widows and orphans, to take care of the vulnerable. But we can also, this is common almost all throughout history up until probably about a hundred years ago. And so even if this is the only thing Naomi said, she's saying, No, I'm gonna go where you go, even if that means danger for me, even if that means that I don't have security. I will go where you go, I will lodge where you lodge. But it's at the last bit of 16 that the most stunning part of it, and it's actually the very center of Ruth's speech. Are the ESV translates it: "You, Your people shall be my people, and your God be my God. But I think, based on my own reading of the Hebrew, but also several scholars uh, have agree with me on this is that a better reading because it is what's called a verbless clause so you have to kind of fill in the verb there's no to be verb in there is that it's because your people are my people and because your god is my god she's giving the very core reason of why she her loyalty to naomi is unwavering why her commitment to the people of israel is unwavering it's because Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is Naomi's or Ruth's God, and the Israelites are her people. We don't know how she came to this knowledge. We don't know how much she knew, but obviously um, she knew enough to know that God, she that's where she wanted her commitment to be. And indeed, we'll explore this idea more, but the whole idea, the whole purpose of the law was to attract the nations to Israel and as they lived out the law they would reflect God and so we don't know if Ruth saw this and was attracted but she was and she in essence changed her allegiance and this is a big deal because to change her allegiance meant that she is breaking from her family from her culture from her God and saying no I'm Going to follow the God of Israel. And so what is happening here is just staggering. And in the next verse in 17, the first half of 17, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. What's amazing about this, because I said, even if just the first half of 16 was all Ruth said, what was amazing about this is she's saying, no, I'm here for the long haul. I'm here until even after you die. And this reflects actually the patriarchal narratives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being buried in the same places, um, the family plot, and... um, and it also helps that we kind of see the strange reality of this when Joseph Lee, Joseph's bones are carried in the Exodus. They take up Joseph's bones. I remember reading that as like 20-year-olds thinking, what's going on here? That's kind of weird that they're taking some guy's bones back to Israel. But okay. And, but what it symbolizes and what it means is that, no, we have kinship even after death. You are my mother-in-law. Even after death, I will be loyal to you after death. Indeed, it actually has a very strong overtone of a that I will be your family even in the afterlife. And so, this is saying no. You're not going to just die, and I'm going to be like, "Oh, now i almost died, I head back to Moab." No, she's there for the long haul this is how much she identifies with the people of Israel and the God of Israel and Naomi. So the last part is an oath. She's giving an oath and she says the Lord do so to me more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's giving an oath saying may God if I break This oath that I'm giving you, or this promise I'm giving you right now, if I break my commitment to you, if your God won't be my God, or if your people won't be my people, if I don't stay until death, I want your God to curse me and do whatever he sees fit to me. This is how much I'm committed. There's a similar oath that Jonathan gives to David, and you can actually find this sort of oath formula throughout the whole Hebrew scripture, but it's a very serious matter. It was taken seriously. And so, what Ruth is doing is stunning because she is essentially casting her lot with the Lord against all reason, against all persuasive sounding arguments for Naomi, and saying, No, I'm going forward. Whatever that means for me, I'm going forward. And so what we end up having here is a stunning proclamation of faith. And, and so what should we make of this? I actually think Robert Hubbard uh, summarizes this well when he states, Ruth recalls an earlier immigrant, Abraham, who cast his lot with Yahweh. However, in Ruth's case, her leap of faith even outdid Abrams, Abrahams. She acted with no promise in hand, with no divine blessing pronounced, without a spouse, possessions, or retinue, and she gave up marriage to a man to be, devote herself to an old woman, and in a world dominated by men at that. Put differently, Luth raw, lost her life, to save it. Ruth found the prerequisite to the good life, which itself is life itself, by following in the footsteps of Abraham. And so my, my call to you this morning, my plea for you to consider, is with even greater assurances of life, of the promise of the kingdom, of the clarity of the forgiveness of sins in Christ? Will you walk in the footsteps of Abraham, or will you walk by sight? And we know, if we read Abraham's account, that walking was not Perfect. And so even when we walk by sight, we find forgiveness. But what do we want our lives to be characterized by? Do we want to find life, or would we like to find death? And so my hope is that we would all, including myself, choose to walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Amen.